0: We are picking up this morning where we left off last Sunday in our sermon series in Paul's letter to the Romans. If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 12. We are right in that applicatory section of Romans where the apostle has given those great gospel truths in chapters one through 11, and now he is applying those truths to the life of believers. Very interesting. There are almost no applications in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And that bothers a lot of professing Christians because we just want somebody to tell us what to do. Just give me 10 practical steps to make my life better. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm going to give you 11 chapters of gospel doctrine about who Jesus is and what he did. That will make you better now I'm gonna give you a whole bunch of applications. And this section is full of them. And it's not always easy to see how these things come together. There is a rhyme and a reason for what Paul says. And I want you to note here just at the beginning that everything that we're looking at this morning is connected with the imperative of Christian love. The imperative of Christian love. And so we're looking this morning at Romans chapter 12 We'll start in verse nine and we're gonna read down to the end of the chapter to verse 21. And as always, you're gonna find it helpful to have your copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. Having called these believers to have their minds renewed so that they could have their lives transformed and having spoken to them about the representative and diverse gifts that God has given to believers, and how they are to use them in the church for the good of other believers, Paul now writes this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in God's providence, I happened, before coming to this passage, I happened to start reading Again, for the second time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. If you've never read his book Life Together, I would highly recommend it. He wrote it in 1938. He wrote it just on the brink of World War II, and he wrote it as a minister who had ministered against the Nazi regime in Germany as a Christian pastor, had pastored illegally because he was not allowed to pastor, had fled, had come back, And as many of you know, was arrested just before the Allies went into Germany and and ended the war, and he was hung after being imprisoned in the Gulag. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man that was remarkable for the way in which he embodied and taught Christian love. In fact, at 21, he had written his doctoral dissertation on love within the Christian community. The opening chapter of that book, Life Together, is one of the most beautiful things ever written in Christendom. And what Bonhoeffer says at the beginning of that chapter is that believers are called to live in the midst of a hostile world and among unbelievers. He said many Christians want to retreat. They want to pull back. They don't want to be around the unbelieving world. But he said our Lord kept us in the hostile, hostile, wicked, unbelieving world for a reason. And then he says, but he has put us together in a Christian community to enable us to learn how to live the life of love among other believers so that we will learn how to live it among the unbelieving world in which God has placed us. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was basically meditating on and expositing everything that the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Um, As he comes now to apply the gospel to believers and to give us something to do, what does God want me to do? Let love be Without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, we're going to see just two things this morning. Gospel-motivated love to believers, the call to gospel-motivated love to believers, and the call to gospel-motivated love to enemies. If you were here last week, you heard that God gives a diversity of gifts to his people. He doesn't give us all the same gifts, and he wants us to use them diligently in a way that builds up the members of the body. And so the first thing that Paul has said is there are things that believers are called to do that are unique to them. Not everyone has a gift of teaching. Not everyone has the gift of faith. Not everyone has the gift of administration or leadership. Not everyone has the gift of generosity. There are certain things that we are called to do, and Paul starts with this, that are unique to you as individuals. But now what he does is says there are other things that God wants us to do that are not unique to one believer over against another, but are true for all believers. And the first thing he says is love. Now... Paul is going to define this and spell this out. He's going to give the characteristic marks. He's going to explain what this looks like in action. He's going to explain what love looks like in action and in reaction to actions that happen to us and in circumstances that occur in our lives. But what's interesting is Paul is essentially telling us the most important thing that you can care about as a Christian Is that you are loving others in the same body Um, my dad when I was a very young adult man that went by quick I was probably 23 or 24 he said to me you know Nick you can go to seminary you can learn all the theology in the world. You can learn how to exegete scripture. You can learn Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and Latin. You can read all the systematic theologies. You can know everything. But you can leave and not have learned how to love people. What a word that is. What a word. What a word it is for us. How how oftentimes we want to skirt the really important thing for the lesser important things. I think that's why Paul is bringing this on the heels of that call to humble service and the use of our gifts. Now he says, he says, love. That's, that's the very first thing is, is love one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Associate with the lowly. This is what life in the Christian community, life together looks like. And let me say this this morning. It really ought to be quite easy if we weren't so sinful. It really ought to be quite easy for us to love one another because we have been redeemed by the same Lord Jesus. We have been justified by the same Redeemer. We have the same forgiveness of sins. We have the same blessings of adoption into the family of God. God has done all of this for us. And when love is not there, it's because we've forgotten that everything about our Christian life is in Christ. And we've turned in on ourselves and we have become consumed with ourselves and our own desires. Listen to this, I love this. Bonhoeffer, as he is reflecting on how this ought to be a joy and a delight, he says this, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Listen carefully. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Now, you know where this was fleshed out in Bonhoeffer's life the most? When he was in prison. They had drug him into prison. They had thrown him in there with many of the Jews and Christians that would eventually lose their lives. And the accounts are that he would go prisoner to prisoner and he would bring a presence of joy into their cells. Joy for being with them there in prison joy in getting to encourage them in prison. And we have everything and we are so selfish. I am so selfish, you are so selfish, we are so selfish. But when when the rubber hits the road and believers need one another and realize what God has given us with one another, we can say the physical presence of other Christians is incomparable joy, incomparable joy. Now notice, Paul is not going to just give us, as he defines love, he's not just going to give us that general sort of sentimental, uh, social understanding of love, because that's the the shape and the form that word has taken on. Notice, as he begins to define love in this and explain what gospel-motivated love looks like, he says, let love be genuine. Now, it's very interesting. If love is the highest virtue, and it is, And if hypocrisy is the lowest vice, and it is, then they ought not ever be brought together. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, why would Paul have to say that? Because he knows that we can put best face on, best foot out, and fake care for one another. He knows that we can sort of just tolerate each other without loving each other. He knows that we can... Uh, be kind to one another personally, and then speak about each other behind one another's backs. He knows that we can point out the flaws in one another, not to them to help them grow in love, but to other people to put them down. He knows that it is possible for us to feign love, and that's a very frightening thing because love must come from a heart that has been captivated and animated by the love of God in Christ, and when it has, It's not going to stand being insincere in the presence of other believers. Um, You know, that's really where we go in all of this. We learn to love insincerity by meditating on the sincere, unending love of the Lord Jesus for sinners like us. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards said, shall not we who are the visible members of the body of this meek and peaceable Jesus be lovingly peaceable one to another? If we're members of his body, if we're members of the body of the Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, that he might redeem us and reconcile us and renew us, can we not love one another? Paul says, let love be genuine. Now... As I said, this is not just a sentimental view of love. It's not just a live and let live, tolerate one another. Notice this, he goes on to define what it looks like. It's not just to be genuine, it's to be holy. Notice this, if poor what is evil, cling fast to what is good. When people say love is love, and that means just love everybody no matter what they're doing and no matter how they're living, that's, that's not love. We, we do love people despite their sinful actions, but Paul says, love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good do you know why Paul has to define love in first Corinthians 13 love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it does not rejoice in iniquity it rejoices in the truth it bears all things it hopes all things it endures all things why does Paul have to define that because there was no societal word that captured the essence of Christian love. And so what Paul is doing there in 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul is doing here in Romans 12, is he is giving us a totally countercultural definition of what love is and what it looks like. What it looks like. It's genuine. It holds fast to what is good. Notice, it is warm. Notice verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. You know, I have sometimes wondered why the Apostle Paul used uh, the analogy of brotherly love as I look at my three sons sometimes. Sometimes. Other times, I get it. There, there is a bond that is like no other bond among uh, brothers and sisters. There can also be hostility like no other hostility but there ought to be an affection, there ought to be a longing. This is why there are movies about bands of brothers. Brotherhood is the idea of the Christian church and Paul is saying, listen, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. We should look at one another as if we are related to one another because in Christ we are related to one another. We are brothers and sisters Uh, because we have the elder brother, the Lord Jesus. You know, there are, I'm going to say this this morning, I didn't plan this, there are a lot of voices right now saying what it means to be a man is to be hard. No, what it means to be a man is to love people with brotherly affection. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Anyone can go be machismo. Anyone. Anyone can do that. Anyone can go learn how to hunt. Anyone can be hard and stern. Only Christians can know how to love one another with brotherly affection and warmth, gentleness, a, a desire to, to build up and bear gently with, to come alongside. This is the idea we get from the Holy Spirit being the comforter, the parakaleo. He, he comes alongside God's people. Christ comes alongside. Christ loves us with a fervent love, a warm affection. Now notice... Paul goes further because it could be possible to say, okay, my love has to be genuine, my love has to rejoice in what's good, and my love has to be full of brotherly affection to other believers. I think I'm doing that, I'm doing pretty good. And Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Uh Uh-oh, I'm gonna tell you all this morning Most of us are not very good at this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Um, Later on, Paul will say rejoice with those that rejoice. Are we happy when others advance in ways that we have not advanced? Are we happy to put others out so that they can use their gifts, so that they can be a blessing to others instead of constantly wanting to be seen and heard ourselves? Um, Now, Paul moves from sort of a general description of what gospel-motivated love among believers looks like to now talk about circumstances in which this love to work itself out. And very interesting, and and verse 11 struck me as so odd at the beginning of this week that Paul would put in there, do not be slothful in zeal. In the Greek, it basically means don't be slothful, don't be lazy in the work God has called you to. I think the connection is this, when I am not working diligently in the vocation in which God has called me for the good of others and the blessing of others, then I am not loving others. You see, because our vocations are not just a means to a paycheck, they're a means to be a blessing to others. They're a means to be a blessing to others in the body, to have things to give, to build them up, to alleviate their burdens, to lighten their loads, and then out from there to be a blessing in the community. You know, I think of many of you and the blessings that I know you are in your vocations to so many because you're doing your work in Christian love. And Paul is saying, listen, if we are walking in love among other believers, do not be slothful in your labors, but notice, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. What's wrong? What is wrong with me if I am not diligent in my labors? There's something wrong in here. He says, be fervent in spirit. There's something wrong. In in the drive, the motivation, the desire, there's something there's something off kilter. And notice he says, "It is that we have taken our eye off of the Lord." Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now he not only tells us how to love in circumstances. He tells us now how to love when those circumstances become difficult he says rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer um, as the love works its way out and those circumstances get difficult and we don't see how we're going to find a way out of those circumstances christian love rejoices in hope it says i'm going to trust the lord it is steadfast in prayer it's patient in tribulation And then, finally, gospel-motivated love to believers looks like seeing the circumstantial needs of other believers and getting in there to help them. Notice, it's not just about my circumstances and the way I respond in love to my circumstances. It's the way I look out and see, are there needs among believers that God wants me to lovingly meet? Notice verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints— and seek to show hospitality. Um, I'm gonna read this quote to to you all because I thought this summed up this first section so well about gospel-motivated love to believers. Sinclair Ferguson says, "'The character of Christian love in our fellowship "'is not simply the matter of mutual toleration.'" It's not simply the matter of mutual toleration. Getting on with one another, the way in which Christian love will be demonstrated in the context of a Christian fellowship is by the fact that Christians in a local assembly will be devoted to one another. You could write over verses 9 to verse 13, devoted to one another. Are we committed to one another? Think about what we said last Lord's Day. Many people are looking for the church to make them feel better about deficiencies in their life. That's not what the church is for. The church is the blood bought people of Jesus being deeply devoted to one another in love, in all of those ways. Now, I know it's true in my life and I would go out and venture, it's probably true for many of you that we could almost wish Paul stopped there. And I could say, you know what? It's good. I can be devoted to God's people. And then Paul says, but what about those people that are harmful to us? What about people? outside the fellowship of the church what about those that attack us what about those that deride us what about those that hate us what about those that persecute us what about those that put us in prison like they did to dietrich bonhoeffer what about them and notice now paul says in verse 14 there is to be gospel motivated love to our enemies bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them um, The mark of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who has been redeemed by Christ is that love rules and reigns in their life, but the mark that they have been redeemed by Christ is not that they give all their money away or in zeal give their bodies to be burned, as Paul says. The mark is that they have learned even to love their enemies. Now, I said it's gospel-driven, because we learn how to do that from the Lord Jesus, who loved his enemies so much that as he was being arrested and Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, the servants, uh, the, the high priest's servant there outside the garden, that the Lord Jesus, on his way to the cross to be crucified, healed malchus's ear in his last miracle before his death in an act of love and then as he's being nailed to the cross he prays father forgive them for they do not know what they do the very ones who are nailing him to the cross now you and me would probably curse them because that's what sinners do but the sinless son of god showed us a far better way he showed us a far better way he teaches us bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Notice down further, he says in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Now, you know avenging yourself can take the shape and form of slandering other people, putting them down, smearing their reputation, not covering their faults. It can look like trying to hurt them subtly, or, and, and John Calvin actually points this out, he said, we can say that that we don't hate somebody that's hurt us while secretly wishing in our heart that some really bad thing would happen to them. Ouch. Ouch. I've done that. There's little thoughts, well, maybe they'll get theirs. Um, he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Notice verse 20, to the contrary. Now, listen very carefully. He doesn't say, don't avenge yourself, just walk away and have nothing to do with them. Nor does he say, don't avenge yourself, but trust them blindly. Listen, nowhere in the scriptures are we to trust our enemies. We're to be on guard of enemies. But we are to love them. And Paul says, what does that love look like in action? Notice this. If your enemies hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this message that we will never learn how to do these final imperatives to love our enemies without the outside the church if we have not learned to love believers inside the church I think that's the logical pr- progression Paul starts with one another and then he says what about enemies and I think what he's saying is if our practice is to love one another fervently with brotherly affection to outdo one another in showing honor to do good to all, to seek to show hospitality, to contribute to the needs of the saints, to rejoice in what is good, to let our love be sincere in this fellowship. If that, if that happens here, then it will overflow out there. And it will, if I can say this this morning, it will do more good in society than all of the political ranting that so many do all of the um, ostracization that so many try to do, all of the self-righteous demeaning that we can do. And instead, we will say, how can I bless those that hurt me? How can I pray for those that have so spitefully used me? You know, what Paul is essentially doing, he's picking up on Jesus' teaching out of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if if your enemy makes you go one mile, go with him too. If he takes your tunic, give him the other one. If he strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. Listen, if we're not doing that in the Christian fellowship among each other, we're not doing it out there. But when we learn the beautiful privilege we have to love one another fervently with brotherly affection in this fellowship, we will be more equipped to carry that love out there in all those other ways. Listen to this. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, he said, Though policy teaches us not to trust our enemies, piety teaches us to love them. When someone hurts us, we should want good for them. And this is what makes Christianity different than everything else in the world. This is completely countercultural, it is counter normative, it is counter instinctual to how we want to respond when people hurt us. Um, You know, I think about James and John, the apostles, and, you know, they were called the sons of thunder, I think because they wanted to call fire down from heaven to destroy the cities that rejected Christ. You remember that account, and they come back to Jesus, and they say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy these, these sinners? And Jesus said to them, you do not know what manner of spirit you have. The son of man did not come to destroy lives, but to save lives. Did not come to destroy lives, but to save lives. I want to say this as we close. You know, I think Paul goes here because he knows this is the most important thing. And if this is not here, all the using of our gifts will result in grumbling or self-aggrandizement, All of our interactions, we will be very thin-skinned, and we will be very bitter to one another, not walking in love to one another. In all of the circumstances in which God places us, we will not learn what it looks like to live out our Christian lives in love, and toward those that attack us and seek to harm us, we will not learn to do them good. And so that means anything else, anything else that we try to do in the name of Christian living, if it is void of this, Paul says it's nothing in 1 Corinthians 13. He says if you have all faith, it's nothing. If you have all knowledge, it's nothing. If you have all, all love so that you'll burn your body, but you don't have the love that God wants in action, it's nothing. Um, this is a good word for us as we start this new year together. And I'm gonna say this this morning, you can only do this. If you have come to know the one who first loved us and who gave himself for us. Scripture says it's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. And if I am deficient in these things, and so often I am and you are too, then we've got to refix our gaze on the Lord Jesus. And we've got to be overwhelmed by the love that he has for us. And then the knots of dissension and discord and bitterness will start to be untangled in our lives. And the smooth paths of love will start to pave everything around us in our fellowships. How marvelous, how marvelous if that would be the characteristic mark of all our relationships. By the way, I haven't thought of one of you this morning to preach at any of you. How marvelous if that starts in my life and in your life and in our lives and we learn to live life together. And then as Bonhoeffer said, the physical presence of other Christians will be a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. I want that. I hope you want that. If you have never come to Christ, you can't have this until you've come to him. You've got to go to the Lord Jesus. You've got to be embracing the manifestation of his love and his death on the cross for our sins. And when we do, we will know a love that will transform this community and our lives in a way that nothing else will. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we long to know more of the love that you have for us. Though we were your enemies, though we were hostile to you, though we hated you and hated one another by nature in our fallen condition, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, that you have loved your own who were in the world and you love them to the end. And we thank you that there are depths and lengths and breaths to your love that are, that are unsearchable. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to go deeper in the knowledge of the love that you have had for us in laying down your life for us on the cross in shedding your blood unto death for us, in, in becoming the object of God's wrath for us, in atoning for our sins, in reconciling us to God and, to, and building us together in a Christian community. Would you cause your love to abound in us that our love may abound for one another and for our enemies? Lord, would you do that in us by your spirit? Would you cause us this year ahead to grow in genuine love, For one another, we pray that that would be tangible and evident among us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.